Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So where we are is we're actually on Hebrews 13 today. So We are finishing up the book of Hebrews, but I think Hebrews has just been an amazing book, and I think it is an amazing letter, and I think it's just a kind of, there's an incredible beauty and an incredible depth to it, and it it reaches back to such ancient ideas and shows how those are all part of this big plan that God has had from the very beginning, and that there's no conflict between the new covenant and the old covenant, that in fact, again, they're all seamlessly part of the same plan, and I think that's an important thing for us to really begin to grasp and understand. And so we've been through the whole thing. I won't rehash all 12 chapters because the author of Hebrews goes over it over and over enough. And you can go back and watch those videos. But here we come up to the end. And this is the conclusion. This is like the goodbye. This is the, the closing of the letter. He has just a few things that he wants to say here. And so that's what he's going to do, is he's going to give us sort of the, the, the ending points. And that's what we're going to do. And so they're, they're connected in the sense that they're all part of the, that they all come naturally. It's kind of like the, the overflow. It's not like, I think it's important to see not Hebrews 13 as what the author has been leading towards. It's not like all 12 chapters have just been preparatory for this. I think it's the other way around. It's that the 12 chapters we've been through have been the meat. They've been the, the heart of it. And chapter 13 is just sort of the overflow. It's just like, well... And now if this is what you believe, and if this is what's true, and if the gospel is real in these ways, then here's what should be the natural outcome of that, and the natural overflow. And that's what we see here in chapter 13. And so that's kind of what we're going to go through. It's kind of some bullet points. They may seem disconnected, but I think if we think of them all as the natural overflow, in other words, what should the community uh, of believers, the community of these These new creations, the community of these people have been made righteous as we approach the throne of grace with confidence. The people of God, what should it look like? What should we look like? What should be characteristic of us? And I think that's kind of one way we see the chapter here in Hebrews 13. It starts like this. He says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So the first point he kind of begins to wrap up with, he's like, okay, so if all this is true, right? Then the first thing he wants to say is he wants to say love, right? Not a big surprise. This is something we see in scripture a lot, that as we are people that are loved by God, our reflection should be that we love. And he starts by saying, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. And that makes sense. Again, it's an overflow. It's a natural response to what we've been seeing. Because what we've been seeing in Hebrews 1 through 12 is that we're part of the family of God. That that's what he says, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Because he's made us righteous, because he's made us fit. We're not just guests. We're not awkward guests that can outstay our welcome. We're not, we're not uh, kind of people who get a backstage pass, but we're not part of the band. No, we're, we're, we're in the family now. We are part of the family. And he says, in light of that, within the community, be devoted to each other. Love one another as brothers and sisters. What does it mean to be family? I, that means a lot of things to a lot of people. But I think when, it, when, when we really think about the difference between our family relationships and our other relationships, the family relationships may or may not be closer than some other relationships we have. But I think the point is the family relationships are permanent. 
right? They're, they're something that you have, right? And, and, and they're something that, they're the people that are always there. And so that's what he's saying is keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Be devoted to each other. So within the community, there's a certain level of commitment and devotion that he wants to encourage. And why? Because we're all righteous by the blood of Christ, by the same thing. None of us are superior to others. None of us have a leg up on other people. We're all there. We're all here just uh, same and equal uh, because of that. we're in that community. But then he goes on and he says it doesn't stop there, right? He says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So it's an interesting phrase and a lot of reasons, but, but for the main thing is he says, Strangers, right? So you've got the people in the community. Be devoted, right? There's a certain level of devotion we have to people that are part of our family. But, he's, but that doesn't mean that we aren't welcoming and we aren't warm to people who are even strangers to us. Let's, let's be honest. We're not going to be devoted to every single person we meet, just like we are to the people we know best that are part of the family, the community that we're in. That's okay. But nonetheless, the strangers, we need to greet them with a warm welcome. We need to not forget to show hospitality. Reach out to them too. Welcome them in. Because they may become part of the family, right? Or, as he says here, they may even be shown to be, shown to be angels without knowing it. You never know, right? You can't, don't, if you're going to, if you're going to prejudge a stranger, prejudge them with the best possible scenario, right? Maybe they're angels. So, I think the point is, be warm, be welcoming to all people, to the people who are strangers. Be devoted to the community of God, be welcoming to everyone. And don't forget to show hospitality and, and give them that, that warm welcome. But then he also says this, continue to remember those who are in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. This is an interesting and really important point. And obviously it's, a, it's about empathy, but there's something I think even more about it that I think is really important. It would go a long way. I think it would change the way that we reinteract with our culture and that our culture interacts with us if we could kind of grasp this. He says, he doesn't just say remember those who are in prison with pity or with sympathy or, he says remember them as if you were together with them in prison. So you may have the privilege to not be in prison, he says to them in the community. You may have the, the privilege to walk around, to you have certain power, you have certain privilege, you have certain things that you can do, you have freedom that they don't have. He says, you may be someone who's not suffering. Maybe you're not being mistreated. Maybe you're not being persecuted. Well, there's two ways to react to that. When you have that kind of leg up, when you have that advantage that, that somebody else doesn't have, one way to react to that is to use that power and that privilege and that leg up and that advantage to maintain it, to use it for yourself, to elevate yourself, right? So you say, well, I'm glad I'm not in prison, and I'm going to use my freedom to make sure I never get there. And I'm glad I'm not being mistreated, and I'm going to use my freedom to make sure I never get mistreated. And he's saying the opposite, though. He's saying, remember those who are in prison as if you're there, right? Use whatever advantages you have to elevate people who don't have those advantages, whatever it is. And I think this is kind of an important point, that, that it's so human, it's human nature, it's so natural to look at things that we have, whether we earned them or we just ended up with them, and both can be the case, either can be the case. But to look at those things as if we just, that we have them, and just say, well, why should I let those go? I have those. I'm going to use my power to maintain that position. Instead of saying, how can I elevate others? How can I remember those who are in prison as if I was there myself? What would I want if I were in their shoes? How would I want to be treated if I were in their shoes? It's the golden rule, right? It's, it's a really simple rule, and yet it's a very powerful one. And so when he talks about love, he says, be devoted to your family, to your community, 
Be devoted to one another. Treat each other as brothers and sisters. Keep doing that. That's good. Don't stop doing that. But as you do that, don't forget to treat strangers with hospitality. Treat everybody with a warmth and a welcome. And then number three, elevate everyone. Love by elevating everyone. Don't use your power to keep other people down and yourself up, but use your power to, keep, to elevate others. And as we do that with each other, then we all elevate, right? Then, then we're all there loving each other. And so love each other with devotion, love strangers with a warm welcome, and love by elevating everyone. Treat others as you would want to be treated. So that's, that's kind of what he says. And this is, again, a natural outgrowth of everything you've seen in Hebrews. This isn't a, a new command. This isn't something that we're supposed to do just because it's a good idea. It's not just a tag on at the end of this book. Oh, here's some good ideas. This is an overflow of what we've been seeing. Why? Because this is how God loves us. He laid aside the very form of his deity. He laid aside his rights, his privileges as God, his power as God, he laid it aside in order to elevate us, in order to welcome us into his family. He greets us with a warm welcome and treats us as angels of God. He is that reflecting that for us. Therefore, it's a natural overflow that this is how we ought to be with other people. He goes on, and he says, be faithful. So interesting phrase about the interesting idea of be faithful. I think there's a lot of depth to this, but it sounds like a very simple sort of statement. But let me read what he says and then share with you what I, what I think it, he means here. He says, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. I think it's just a part of the nature of our culture that this is one of those things that our culture tends to see as archaic, even patriarchal, right? We tend to see it as as related to a certain sort of culture that we're no longer part of or don't want to be part of. We even see it as a negative thing, to think that there should be sort of a, uh, a, a, an exclusivity to our relationships in marriage, that there should be a, a, this, this old traditional idea that sex should be reserved for monogamous relationships, lifelong commitments, marital commitments. And yet this is something scripture is as clear about as it is about uh, not oppressing the poor. And so while we may emphasize one over the other various times because our culture fits that, it's important to remember that the author and scripture is telling us things that have some eternal value. So what's, what's the point here? Well, I, I don't want to get beyond the basic point. You know, I think it is saying that there's a certain exclusivity to the sexual relationship, which is for intimacy and monogamy. But that's the point I want to say, is that I think what we see here in this, and I think you're going to see this in the next verse, there's a connection that may not be really clear, I think what we see here is that commitment between relationships, a sort of devotion between relationships, and an exclusivity of what we share with each other leads to a level of intimacy which isn't normal, which doesn't just sort of happen on its own. And, and, and not to get too graphic here in, in mixed company, but I'll keep, it, I'll keep it general, but sex is the sharing of bodies. And our bodies are one of the most intimate and exclusive things that we can share, right? It is, it is so tied to us. It is so connected. It is, it is ours and ours alone, right? That, that's even something our culture recognizes is what we call bodily autonomy, the importance of it. And so when you share that, and of course this is talking about a voluntary sharing. This is not, there's no intimacy and forcing of this at all, ever, under any circumstances, in any context. But when you have a relationship where there's a commitment to each other and a devotion to each other and an exclusivity 
of what you share, it makes that intimacy all the greater. And it makes that faithfulness all the more important because it is, a sh it is showing a devotion. So he says, don't let that go. Let's, let's remember that in marriages, there is this commitment, there is this exclusivity, there is this intimacy that isn't necessarily reached another way. And in light of that, right? In light of that, it makes sense that this is something, and not only in light of that, what I was going to say is, in light of it also being that this is sort of the foundation of the family, right? The, the family unit often comes from this exclusive marriage of two people, and then you have the kids who come out of that. There's, again, a specialness to that, just like we talked about being devoted to each other as family. And so we need to not let that go, right? There's... There's nothing that, that says that a lifelong commitment and exclusivity and intimacy, uh, to see that as simply sort of archaic or trite or cute, um, uh, quaint, is missing the real depth of that. It's missing the beauty and the point of that. And then he goes on and he says this, and this may not sound connected, but I think it's very connected. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Let's, let's go at this backwards because the end of that sentence clarifies the connection. God is faithful to us in the way that he's asking us to be faithful to each other. You see that? He says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God is committed to us. He's so committed to us that he had this grand cosmic plan that we've been through the entire book of Hebrews learning about. That's how committed to us he is. He's so committed to us that he's been through all of this just to make it clear to us that he loves us. He has shared, in many ways, his body with us on the cross, right? He says, my body has been broken for you. He has voluntarily been as intimate with us as, as the God of the universe could possibly be. And he chose to do that. And he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And that, we can see, relates to the marriage. So what's this thing about money, right? Why does he say that? Well, because the love of money is often used in Scripture. It's not that money is bad. It's not bad at all. In fact, never is money said to be bad. Love of money is said to be something we should be concerned about. Right? Love of money, we're told elsewhere, is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of all evil, but it's the root of all kinds of evil. Why? Here's the point. Money has the ability, it has the potential to become the thing that we count on to protect us, to provide for us, to make us happy, to keep us safe. It, it can be that thing for us. And as something which can be that thing in every generation, in every culture, it's, 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 it's had its allure for a long, long time, and will continue to do so. As that thing, it's easy for the love of money to become the replacement of the thing we should be counting on, which is God. God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We do not have that confidence of money. We do not have that confidence. In fact, people who are really good at making it often become people who are most aware that they don't have that confidence, that it could go at any time. And, but it's not just money. Money's just a really good, prominent, timeless example of that. But there's all sorts of other things that can be that way. Prestige, or popularity, or fame, or the love of other people, or possessions, or, or, or pleasure, or fun, or uh, 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 skill, or ability. All these are things, good looks, these are all things that we can begin to rely on to give us what we need, but we can't count on them the way we can count on God. God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But all the other things in our life, they're fickle. And they can be fickle. And even if you think that they will never leave you, you finally got enough money, or you've really got this thing figured out, 
You just, you just don't know. You just can't count on those things. But God, you can count on. His commitment, His faithfulness, and intimacy with Him. And that's why I think marriage is so important in Scripture. And that's why I think even the sexual relationship in the marriage is so important. is because it reflects this kind of commitment, this kind of devotion that God has for us. And we need to remember that. We need to cling to that. We need to learn that in our earthly relationships so that we can have that. Not so we can have that, but so we can understand that we have that with God. It goes on. He says this. The reason, oh, so in marriage, be faithful in marriage, and then to God. The reason we should be faithful to God is because he's faithful to us. It says this, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Think of who he's writing. The Hebrews, they're being persecuted, right? He's like, if, if you're clinging to money, you're always worried about what you can lose. People can take money from you. If you're clinging to your own sort of personal sense of safety, you're always going to be worried about the fact that people can take that from you. Whatever it is that you're counting on to never leave you, you're putting yourself in the hands and the power of other people who can remove that from you. But, if you're clinging to God and God alone, you can say with confidence, what can mere mortals do to me? There's a story, don't know if it's true, uh, but there's a story about Demosthenes. He's a, a philosopher who famously, supposedly lived in a barrel. His whole point was, if you have possessions, you always have something you can lose. And there's a story that Alexander the Great, who was taking over the world, Came, to, came up into the city, and Demosthenes was in a barrel, and Alexander the Great asked him to submit, and basically Demosthenes said something along the lines of, uh, what? he said, why do you live in a barrel? And he said, what? because you can't take anything from me. You can take this barrel, and I'll still be me. I'll find, whatever, I'll find another barrel. You know, you can't take anything from me. And Alexander the Great supposedly turned to his army and said, this is the most powerful man in the world, because there's nothing I can take from him. And so that we have more confidence than he did because his only confidence was in having nothing. Our confidence is in having everything in God, knowing that he is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So he says love. Love one another. That's an overflow of what we've seen. Number two, being faithful. That's an overflow because we recognize how faithful God has been to us, how faithful he's been through his covenant, his old covenant, his new covenant, his grand plan, to, to rescue us. He promised the Savior, he promised the Messiah, he promised the hero, and the hero came. So those are the first two things he says. Let love overflow from that, let your faithfulness overflow from that, be people who understand commitment and intimacy, exclusivity in that sense. And then he goes on and he says, what should we focus on? What are the things that we should be thinking about as we move forward? So he, number one, he says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The word leaders is interesting. And I was having this discussion with some other pastors recently this last week. And, and there is this tendency to over sort of state the, the importance of titles and positions, right? We, we like positions and we like titles. And I'm not saying they're irrelevant. But it is interesting that when he says, remember your leaders, what does he mean? Here, what does the author mean? When he says that, does it mean me, right? I'm writing this letter, am I your leader? I don't know. I don't really know what his position in their community is, in a sense. Uh, to some degree, I suppose he could be. Um, does he mean, the, does he mean the, the priests? Does he mean the specific church pastors and overseers and bishops? I, I assume all that is encompassed in this idea, but I like the way he defines it. What if the next phrase is not simply a, oh, here's one of the things they did, but what if this is how he's defining the leaders in this moment? 
Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Who are the people that have taught you the truths of Scripture? Who are the people that have really helped you grow in wisdom? And he says this, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I love this too. We are, we are told to imitate people, but notice what we're called to imitate, their faith. We are never called to live exactly like someone else lives, do exactly what someone else does, think exactly like someone else thinks. What our leaders, what true leaders have done, is shared truth with us, spoken the word of God to us, revealed to us things that God has revealed, and then lived a life that is consistent with what they've shared, lived a life of integrity that flows from the, what they've learned in the word of God. And what we're to do is imitate not the actions that they performed, but the faith that they exhibit by their consistency of life. And I think this is what he means by remember your leaders. So focus on the examples in your life who live scripture. But again, when I say live scripture, I don't just mean they're living sort of a rigid set of rules that may show up in scripture. Do you see in their life a reflection of a wisdom of scripture internalized? Do you see their faith in God or just their sort of obedience to a set of regulations, right? Which is it? But, but what you want to look for is those leaders who have consistency. We all know that it's always a sad thing when there are leaders who get exposed because they haven't lived their life according to scripture. And I'm not talking about perfection. Of course not. I'm not talking about just everybody. In fact, leaders who live their life according to scripture will be honest and vulnerable and you will know that sometimes they fail. Sometimes they mess up. So I'm not talking about finding people who never mess up, because all you're going to do there is find people who are really good at hiding their mess-ups. That's the best you're going to get if you're looking for perfection. But we know, you can tell, there are people in your life whose life has a certain consistency to it. It has a certain integrity to it. And you say, man, they really believe the scripture. They really trust God. And they may not get it all right, but is there a humility and is there a faith that you can remember as an example? Can you focus on them? Don't focus on all the failures. There are so many, right? I'm not saying we shouldn't expose them. I'm actually glad when people are exposed. I don't, I don't take glee in it. It makes me sad. But I don't think we should hide it. That's not the point. So I'm not saying, when I say don't focus it, I'm not saying that we should never expose things. Things come to light. God says they will. But what I am saying is we can focus on all the failures. We can focus on all the leaders who failed. We can focus on all the people personally, ourselves, who didn't didn't live a life of scripture, and that will simply leave us feeling defeated, discouraged, and cynical. But instead, look to the people in your life. Look to the leaders you know who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Look to those leaders, right? And you know you have them. And they may have a position, or they may not. They may be a leader in your life because they're your mom, or your dad, or your teacher. They may be a leader in your life because they're a friend who, was, who has given, just been a good example they may not have a specific position or title. They may, and if they do, look to them too. Don't leave them out. But I think this focus on examples who live scripture is so important. I know that when I went to college years and years and years ago, that is one of the things that changed my life, was seeing people who actually live scripture. And ever since then, I've tried to find those people and follow those people and follow their examples and imitate not their behavior, but their faith. Imitate their faith. He then goes on, he says this, which is really cool. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there's a limit on focusing on the examples who live scripture. What's that limit? 
failure, <laughs> frailty, flaws, humanity, right? Our examples, our heroes are always going to fall short at some point. And I'm not saying that that makes it all okay. I still think you look for those people who by and large have a consistency. Not everybody kind of falls apart at exactly the same level in the same way. And, and, and there's people who are kind of the height of hypocrisy and there's people who struggle and we know it. And, and that's okay. So I'm not saying you can't ever find examples, but I am saying we know there's a limit to that. People change. I have, I have mentors today that were great examples for me for so many years of my life. And today, they've gone directions I don't think are, 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 are showing faith. And I, I can't follow them. It's really hard to, to I, you know, it's a difficult thing because I love them. And because I respected them. And because they gave me so much. And so that's always disappointing when that happens. And that's why I think he goes on to tell us, but also focus on Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He doesn't flow with the cultural mores and norms. He's not one way now and another way another time. And, and one thing that's really encouraging to me is to think that this means that the Jesus Christ that died on that cross because he loves you so much, he loves you just as much today, and he will love you just as much tomorrow. He doesn't regret what he did. He hasn't stepped back from that and said, oh my goodness, why did I even bother to build this church full of nincompoops? You know, it's none of that. So it's really good to focus on the timelessness of Christ, that he is the same. We can count on him. He will never leave us or forsake us, and his example will always be perfect. So remember your leaders, who are examples who live scripture, but also cling to that timelessness of Christ and focus on that. Then he goes on. He says, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. This goes back to what he's been talking about through the entire book of Hebrews. We have a cleansing that the, the priest didn't have. Now, through the Messiah, I think it covers even people in the Old Testament. That's not the point. But the point is, the cleansing that came from the Old Covenant is, is lesser, right? The cleansing that we have through the Messiah, all of us across history, is greater. And, and he says, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Sometimes we think grace only goes so far. We think grace is really good, but if we teach it too much, it leads us into licentiousness. I, I have just decided and learned, I think I've learned, I don't think I just decided, over 31 years of being a pastor, reading scripture, studying scripture, and watching lives of people, I think I just realized and, and believe firmly that really understanding grace always strengthens you. It never weakens you. It never makes you more susceptible to sin. It never makes you more licentious, right? When you really embrace the grace of God, that our righteousness is in Him, it takes out, out that, that pressure to make it happen on our own, which always inevitably leads to the de de defeat of not being able to make it, of falling apart, right? It leads to the hiding of our sins because we're trying to put forth this front of doing it. But the grace of God leads to vulnerability, it leads to humility, it leads to honesty, and it leads to strength, it leads to righteousness. And so it's, he says it is good to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, not by doing something, not by performing some rituals. That doesn't strengthen us, that doesn't give us any benefit. It is the grace of God that strengthens us. Always, always focus on grace, always. You can never focus on the grace of God too much. I believe that firmly. You can never focus on the grace of God too much. It's deep, it's profound, it's eternal, it's bigger than you think it is. However big you think it is, it's bigger than that. And if focusing on the grace of God doesn't strengthen you, maybe you've just made the grace of God too small. 
because it's bigger. So you focus on examples who live scripture. You imitate their faith, which I think will always be a heavy emphasis of grace, by the way. You focus on the timelessness of Christ, and you focus on the grace of God as we move forward. He goes on and he says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. So he was talking about those who ministered at the tabernacle, how what we receive of grace is better. And then he says, The high priest went into the most holy place, but the bodies were burned outside the camp. So you would think where you would want to be is with the high priest in the most holy place, but listen to this switcheroo. He says, So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Here's the point. We think, right, that he says we have a grace that's greater than the, what happened at the tabernacle. And then he makes this weird point where they go into the most holy place. And he says, but Jesus suffered outside the city. He's like the scapegoat. He's like the disgraced animals. He says that's where we should go. That's where we should go. Because that's who we are. Not disgraced. I mean, if we're disgraced like Jesus is disgraced, that's good company is his point. But it's more than that. It's that we really want to be in the city, right? We want to be where the high priest is. We want to be where the action seems to be prestigious and good and, 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 and there's a little bit of oomph and reputation and power. And, and I think in the American church, we've grown accustomed to the idea that part of being the people of God means having people respect you. And we're being really surprised and kind of floundering for our identity as that has changed over the last few decades. And I think part of God's message to us would be, Jesus went outside the city, let us also go outside the city, because we do not have here an enduring city. This is not our world. We are in the world, but not of it. This is not our citizenship. We are to be good citizens, I believe that. And we are to be grateful for the country we live in, because there's a lot of reason to be, I believe that. But this is not our enduring citizenship. This is not where we ultimately are at home. This is not where we ultimately live. So we can seek a place of prestige and power and prominence within our city, whatever it is, whether it's America or some other community, we can seek that. And if God gives us that, that's one thing. But if we seek that and we cling to that, maybe we're missing being where Jesus is because sometimes he's outside the city. And so he tells us to focus on our eternal city. Focus on our eternal citizenship. Don't get too bogged down in the things of this world. Some of you probably sang an old hymn, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Right? This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. There's a lot of beautiful things on this journey as we pass through the world, and I think we should enjoy and appreciate and relish every single one of them as gifts of God. But I think we should remember we're on a journey. And I think we should remember that we are not, in fact, residents here. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So he says, with all of this, right, as you think about all of this beautiful, beautiful things, the people, the leaders, who, lead, who live scripture, the timelessness of Christ, the grace of God, our residence in an eternal city, then let us through Jesus continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. 
let us be grateful. And let us be more than grateful. Let us praise Him. I, I think it's one thing to have an attitude of gratitude. It's a good thing. There's a lot of studies that show gratitude overcomes anxiety. Gratitude overcomes anger. Gratitude overcomes stress. Gratitude makes us more healthy uh, physically as well as mentally. I mean, there's a lot of studies about the benefits of gratitude. But here's the irony in our culture is there's a lot of people who encourage gratitude. But gratitude used to mean to somebody for something. You would be thankful to somebody for something. But now there's just this general gratitude. It's like counting your blessings, which I think is good. It's like thinking positive, which again, I think can be healthy. But for us, it's more than that. We shouldn't just be grateful. We should give praise. Because we know to whom we are grateful. We know who has brought us all good gifts. The Father from heaven is the author of all good gifts in our lives. And Jesus brought us the grace of God. He is the door into the grace of God and the righteousness upon which we stand. And so let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. So what should we focus on? On gratitude and praise. How many believers do you know in their social media presence, in their, ver in their real life presence, that do not seem to be continually offering a sacrifice of praise? Their, their demeanor and their countenance is not one of gratitude and praise. And how many Christians do you know that do have that demeanor, and how much more pleasant is it to be with them? <laughs> Let's be those people. It is natural. It is natural. It is an overflow of everything we've seen in Hebrews to be people of gratitude and praise if we really understand the lengths to which God went, the lengths to which our hero, our Messiah, our Savior went, to make us righteous. He went outside the city to be disgraced. He died on a cross in an accursed manner so that we could have an eternal city and continually offer a sacrifice of praise. And then he says this. After all of these things, he says love, he says be faithful, he says focus on these things, and then he wraps up with a few things we can do. And I want to tell you focus, right? You our Focus Church. You're here, you're listening to me. You may be uh, a stranger who's visiting in which we warm you welcome, welcome you warmly, warm you welcomely, however that works. We welcome you warmly. Absolutely come on in. We'd love to have you be part of the family. You may be part of the family. You may be brother and sister of mine in Christ. I'm glad you're here. Uh, here we are today, right now, we're all Focus Community, whoever we are. And so as Focus Community, I want to say something to you. And specifically to those of you who are, have embraced the gospel, because that's the overflow. If, if you're just checking it out, then the things I'm going to tell you here to do, you don't have to do, because they, they won't overflow. But if you have accepted the gospel, and you accept the new covenant, you recognize who Jesus is, if you're even moving that way, I'm going to encourage you, focus, here's some things to do. The author of Hebrews says these things, and I want to present them to you in my agreement with his words. So here's what he says. Number one, do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. I love the simplicity of this. He says, do good. <laughs> Just do good. Sometimes it's really simple, right? I get it. Sometimes we're always like, is this right? Is this wrong? I know, but some things you just know are good, right? He says, share with others. It's, it's like when we're kids, we learn that, right? Jesus says to share. It's good to share. We learn that. Share your cookie. Share your thing. Share with each other. And I think, again, do, what does it mean to do good? If it really gets complicated to you, take it back 
to the most beautiful and yet also pretty simple command of Jesus to do to others what you want done for you. If you don't know what's good, ask yourself, what would be good for me? What do I wish people were doing for me? In fact, one of the ways that I remember, he says, do not forget to do good. It's amazing to me. We can just go through life. We have so many things to do. I think we do forget to do good. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I have, and it's an amazing experience because it reminds me. Where you're standing in a grocery store line, and somebody pays for your groceries. Now, sometimes that's happened because I found myself short. That's embarrassing. But sometimes it's happened just because it's just happened. The person behind me was like, I'd like to pay for your stuff for no reason. Or, or you're at a Starbucks or Sonic, and you pull up, and they're like, the guy in front of you paid for it, right? It's just, when that happens, you're like, oh, that person remembered to do good. He didn't have to. He just remembered. So one of the ways that I remember that I don't forget to do good is to specifically ask myself when I'm feeling unappreciated or unnoticed or, or, or like people aren't thinking about me, I ask myself, well, then what is it I wish someone else was doing for me? What is the good I wish someone else would do for me? Can I do it for them? And it's fascinating to me that if I'm feeling, for example, unappreciated and I start going around appreciating people, a couple of things happen. One is I suddenly realize I'm not the only one feeling unappreciated. Second thing I realize is all that time I spent feeling unappreciated, I was definitely forgetting to do good to others. <laughs> so why are they forgetting to do good to you? Maybe because they're feeling like they're waiting for someone to do good for them. So you be the first. You be the grown-up in the room. And don't forget to do good and share with others because God is pleased by those sacrifices. Right? You see the point? The lamb... The, 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 the bull, the ox, all these things God called them to do in the Old Testament, which they were very rigorous to do. The other Hebrews is telling them, what does God really love you know, in, the, in the New Covenant? What are the sacrifices we bring? What are the religious things we do? We do good, and we share with others. So do good. Then he goes on, he says this, Have confidence in your leaders, and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So there's a lot here, and just to make it very quickly, he says submit to their authority, and that is a dodgy thing in our culture. This whole idea of submission and authority, we have a lot of wrestling with it. And you know what? I think it's good. I think we should be wrestling with it, because I think the ideas of submission and authority have really been corrupted over the years by humans. And I think to go back to kind of what Scripture is talking about, though, is really good. So we don't dispense with all the idea of submission and authority, but it's okay that we're visiting what that really means. And I just want to say briefly here, he says have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. He's not saying have confidence in your leaders because they're your leaders. He's not saying just decide. I think he is saying, look, you have leaders that have been examples to you of living life in scripture. You've considered their way of life. You've, you've considered the outcome and you want to imitate their faith. So. If they've been those people, have confidence in that, right? If you've seen it, you have reason to have confidence. And in our day and age, if you don't have confidence in your leaders, you know what? There's a lot of leaders. Again, doesn't mean they have to be perfect. But you have confidence that they're humble before God, that they're pursuing the things of God. If you do, have confidence in them and submit to their authority. Now, here's the other thing about this that's, that's tricky for us, is the word authority. I don't think it means, when he says submit to their authority, that leaders have all authority. They have authority over certain spheres of things. They have authority over certain things. What do they have authority over? The Word of God, 
not, not that they control it, but their job is to teach it. Their job is to share it with you. If you have confidence in them, then give them respect as they share with you some things that are there. Maybe they're challenging you in ways you've never thought about before. Does that mean you have to obey and do exactly what they say? No, I think if they're good leaders, they won't tell you what to do. But they will challenge you. And if they're challenging you in that, then maybe you submit to their authority by considering the challenge. I don't think it means you obey and do only what they tell you to do. Again, a good leader shouldn't be focused on telling you how to live your life. That isn't what leaders are supposed to do. But they should be challenging you to examine your faith. Submit to that authority. Accept that. Say, okay, I'm going to let them challenge my way of life because I've seen their way of life. I'm going to let them challenge my faith because I'm going to imitate their faith. I think it's hard to do, but I think everyone, this is for everyone, I am constantly on the lookout for people who I can have confidence in and I can submit to their authority. Not all authority, not to tell me how to live my life, but in the whatever sphere makes sense for them to have it. And then he says, they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. If you are submitting to someone who has that authority, guess what? God's holding them accountable for that. And their authority is for your care. And that's the other thing. Authority and responsibility should be the same words. We have divorced them a lot. And when you see someone who has authority and no responsibility, or someone who has responsibility and no authority, it's always a problem. It never works well. One is frustrating, the other is overbearing. But I think the point is that if you think of authority and responsibility together, those who have authority that you're submitting to, their authority is the responsibility of watching over you, caring for you, trying to make your journey easier and better. So submit to those people because they're just trying to help you and because that makes their work a joy which is a benefit to you. Now, if the idea of submitting with confidence and joy is hard for you, I want you to wrestle with that. Consider my authority as you sit and listen to me to be limited to challenging you to think about that. And submitting to this authority doesn't mean you suddenly think I told you what to do because I didn't. So if you think that means you're supposed to go submit to somebody specifically, I didn't say that <laughs> in, a, in a weird way. But, but, but take it this way. The authority I have as somebody on a screen telling you something is to submit to the idea, the concept, to think about it, to wrestle with it. To say, God, what does it mean to submit with confidence and joy? David says, this is in this book in Hebrews, he says it means something and it's not archaic and quaint, so I want to wrestle with that. That is the limit, I think, of my authority at this moment in your life, but I think it's a worthwhile authority to submit to. Okay, so we'll go on. You can, you can think about that and chew on that. Then he says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. So it's pretty interesting. He says, basically, we're the kind of leaders you can have confidence in because we, we, have, we haven't done anything wrong and we are trying to live honorably. And he says, I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. So we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but apparently he does have a relationship with them. He's, for some reason, unable to be there with them. And he says, pray for us. And I want to say specifically, Focus Church, pray for me. Pray for me as your pastor and pray for your leaders. Pray for your group leaders, your focus group leaders. Pray for your worship leaders, right? Pray for your worship team. Pray for anybody who has any sort of authority or responsibility in our church to care for you, to provide for you. Pray for us, because we need that prayer. Because we watch leaders all the time become overbearing, authoritarian, hypocritical, afraid of vulnerability, and we don't want to be those leaders. We don't ever want to step into the place of trying to be the Messiah that Jesus is to be. So pray that we don't. Pray for us. Pray for us. Pray that we do our jobs with wisdom. Pray for us that serving you, we serve you. That we see authority and responsibility is tied together. Pray for us as your leaders. I I'm asking you specifically, focus, church, whoever's listening to this right now, I mean this. Don't just, don't just 
put this as a thought, do it. <laughs> Please? <laughs> Pray for us? Okay. And I can tell you of the leaders in our church that we have a clear conscience. Not that we never mess up anything in our lives, but as it comes to our church, we have a clear conscience that we are trying to look out for you and, and not control you. And that we are trying to live honorably in every way. Pray for us that we do and that we maintain a clear conscience. I actually want to skip the next paragraph because I want to close with that because it's a good benediction. So skipping over the next paragraph, he then says this. Brothers and sisters, I urge, urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. So I love this. This is 13 chapters. It's taken us many, many weeks. There's a lot here. It's very dense. It's very meaty. And then like your typical pastor, he says, it's only been a brief word. <laughs> I think what it reminds us of is how much more he could have said. I think what the author of Hebrews means is not that this wasn't a long letter. This is a long letter in anybody's generation at any time. I think what he means is, compared to the content, compared to what we're talking about, which is this grand cosmic plan, which reaches back to Genesis all the way up through, you know, where we are now in the book of Hebrews, he says, compared to everything we could have talked about, the grace is so big, the gospel is so infinite and so profound, that what I've shared with you is just a snippet. It's just a touch. And I want to remind you, Focus Church, that every week when we meet in our groups and when we talk on Sunday nights and as we meet with each other, it's always brief. It's always just a snippet of the depth of what it's really all about. And we'll never get there in one sermon or one group or one meeting or one prayer time. Don't think that we have to. We're in this for the long haul. That's what I'm going to tell you. Do remember that we're in this for the long haul. This is why we spend life together. This is why we commit in devotion to each other's brothers and sisters, because we're in this for the long haul. We don't force anyone to stick around, but if you do, we're in this for the long haul. He goes on, he says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come to with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people, and those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Those from Italy send you their greetings. I think that means that he is, he, I, don't, I think he's writing to people in Rome, in Italy, and there are people with him who are from Italy. Dog wants to go out. Um, there are people who are almost done. You're going to have to wait. There are people with him who are from Italy, and he's just saying, they're saying hi. So he's just wrapping up. But that's the other thing we remember, is that he is part of their community. He's written this long letter, but he knows them. And Timothy knows them. And we know Timothy. He's a name that comes up in other scriptures. And so there is this community. There is this, this sense of family that is reinforced. And, and so we are in this for the long haul. And I want to make a statement that I know some of you are tired of hearing. But this has been true before COVID. And it will be true after COVID. And Focus Church, that's that we really are in this together. As we go through life, we believe that discipleship is communal. We believe we're in this as a community. We believe we're in this together. And that means life. And we're here to help each other and support each other. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I'll see you next week. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at Pastor Mac, M-A-C, 
underscore at Mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.